why don't more stories end well? The real-life stories that begin with promise devolve into scandal and finish in disgrace. The tales of failure or estrangement, addiction, or wasted potential. There are so many of these. Are they written that way by the author? Or are these corrupted texts? This is a story about one of the greatest enemies of a beautiful ending. Appetite. It's a story about hunger and thirst and power struggles, about manipulation and deception and fear. It's a story about the burdensome blessing of extraordinary qualities, beauty, strength, access, and the heartbreaking way Yahweh's vision for these gifts is abandoned. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. It's happened again. Perhaps it's the appeal of forbidden fruit. Perhaps it's that he feels like women in Israel don't understand him or put too much pressure on him to be true to his Nazarite vow. Perhaps he hates the men of Ashkelon and Gath and feels like this is the best way to get under their skin. Whatever the contributing factors, history has repeated itself. Samson is in love with a Philistine woman. His parents are going to hate it. But if they couldn't do anything about it last time, they certainly can't now. Samson has a few more years under his belt and quite a few more Philistine scalps. No, Samson does what he wants. And he wants to be with her. Her eyes her hair, her skin. She's just bewitching. Even her name is beautiful, Delilah. He can't stop making visits to the fertile valley of Sorek to see her. The wheat, the barley, the grapes, it's like they're bursting with life, celebrating his love. Of course, there's been no talk of marriage yet, star-crossed lovers and all that. After his last marriage to a Philistine, well, better to just enjoy themselves. Besides, a man like Samson has no intention of being tied down. To see me? Delilah blinks in confusion. Why would the rulers of the Philistines come to see her? Traveling from Ashkelon and Gath, Ashdod and Ekron and Gaza, that's so much trouble for such important men. And she's just a... unless it's about... him. And it is. We know you're seeing Samson of Israel, the enemy of Philistia, they tell Delilah. 
some opening line like that, cutting right to the chase, efficient and intimidating. And then we want you to see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength. Another pipes up, perhaps unable to control his excitement at this opportunity, and how we can overpower him so that we can tie him up and subdue him. Delilah's mind races. Samson's exploits among her people are the stuff of legend, of course. The thirty men he killed and stripped naked in Ashkelon, the fire-tailed jackals that set acres of Philistine crops ablaze, the one thousand he struck down at what's now aptly called Jawbone Hill. Why would a Philistine girl want to take up with someone who had done these things to her people? Perhaps it's the appeal of forbidden fruit, the allure of such a powerful man, or the charm of his dangerous playfulness. Maybe it's fate. But something horrifying has been made clear to Delilah by this visit. Her evening interludes with Samson are not secret anymore. If the rulers know, everyone does. She is not the virgin maiden parents require as they seek to pair their sons. So if Samson doesn't take her as a wife, who will? No one. No one would have her, and without a husband's income, her only options would be poverty or, or prostitution. But if she collaborates with these rulers, Samson will be captured, and she'll never be able to marry him, which leaves her... Perhaps this is why the governors of the Philistine Pentapolis sweeten their demand, surely it's laced with implied threats, with a reward. If you do this, each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. It's an exorbitant amount. Delilah's heart beats at the prospect of this life-changing sum and the possibility of the life-ending consequence of rejecting the ruler's offer. Espionage. Betrayal. Can they really expect her to... And what if Samson gets wise? What would he do to her if he found out? What will they do to him if this works? Delilah nods. What else can she do? Samson strides down toward the Sorek Valley from the heights of Zora, that fluttering feeling flitting in his stomach. His endless hair freshly braided, perhaps, seven cords hanging like vipers down his back. He can't wait to see her. Yahweh watches, tense, disquieted. When Philistia began oppressing the people of Israel, he took notice. When they continued to do it, he stepped in. The selfishness, the cruelty, the ransacking, the rape, it had to end. The Philistines' arrogance had to be disrupted. And so he chose Samson as his disruptor. But the strong man of Dan has had little interest in connecting with Yahweh. Violence seems to be much more attractive to Samson than justice. 
And as for the vow of divine intimacy into which Yahweh invited Samson at birth, well, his uncut hair seems to be one of its final vestiges. Yahweh will use an unwilling or unwitting servant. He always has, but he had higher hopes for Samson. And now, Perhaps it happens like this. In the afterglow of their union, Samson lies beside Delilah, spent. She traces her finger across the taut skin of his chest, takes a breath, and asks. No, commands. Might only understands might. Tell me the secret of your great strength. A sultry smile. And how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson's eyebrows rise, his eyes open. He turns on his side to face her, propping his head on his upturned palm, his elbow pushed into the mattress. He smiles, maybe. Does he think of Yahweh? Delilah's heart pounds inside of her, announcing her maiden attempt at spycraft. Finally, Samson replies, if anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. So that's it. The Hulk of Zora, the man who snapped the new ropes of the Judeans like charred flax, subdued by seven thin bowstrings. It makes no sense, of course, but Delilah knows all of the Philistines do, that they're dealing with power that transcends the physics of the natural world. They're not looking for something that's stronger than Samson. They're looking for something that robs him of strength, something that breaks his tie to the supernatural. Fresh bowstrings. A little gross, the thought of wet animal tendons. But so be it. They've come again? Themselves? The amount of personal attention the rulers of the Pentapolis are giving to this is stunning. But there is no more pressing matter of national security. Getting rid of Samson means returning to their uncontested position of power over Israel. And Israel's God. Delilah reaches out a trembling hand. The rulers nod gravely as she takes the bowstrings still moist with animal life, and hides them in the room where she and Samson usually have their rendezvous. Philistine soldiers gather nearby, ready to be summoned when the time is right. Samson takes her in with his eyes. What a wonder. His flesh warms. He pulls her to himself, and they tumble onto the bed, perhaps. Samson blind to everything in the room, everything in the world, but her. Veins swollen, hide glistening, his arm flexed like the flank of a horse, Samson gorges himself on the object of his desire. When they finish, he plummets into an exhausted sleep. Suddenly, Samson wakes to Delilah's screaming voice. Samson, the Philistines are upon you! 
bleary-eyed, he jerks from the bed, head swiveling this way and that, ready to dodge and grab, punch and hurl, knock one Philistine after another unconscious, or impale them on a bedpost, or wring their necks with his massive paws. But instead of a room full of soldiers advancing with swords raised, Samson sees nothing. The room is still. As he catches his breath, Samson glances to the corner of the room to see Delilah pouting. He reaches up to wipe the sleep from his eyes. From his wrist hang the tattered remains of... What is that? It looks like a fresh bowstring. Oh, interesting. You've made a fool of me. Delilah wipes the tears from her cheeks. If Samson starts to ask how, she cuts him off. You lied to me. Come now. She looks into his eyes, composes herself. She's so beautiful. No secrets. Tell me how you can be tied. Does he wonder if there's more to her curiosity than intimacy? Does he ask? If Delilah says something about being close, about there being nothing hidden between them, about the importance of trust, he points her, surely, to the bowstrings hanging accusingly from his wrists. I had to know if you were telling the truth, she says simply, perhaps. Just out of view, the soldiers crouch, hidden in the shadows. She could tell him, of course lay her cards on the table, out the hiding men, and reveal everything, make it clear to Samson what's at stake here, how she was propositioned and threatened, what she was promised. Does she consider this? She could tell him that marrying her would fix everything, that they could run away together and she would need their money, and... But she doesn't. She holds her cards close to her chest. Perhaps she's been hurt before, used for her beauty, and discarded like an object. Perhaps her wounds, her fear, her desperation have found expression in her studied coolness, the ability to manipulate she's had to develop in order to stay alive in this world. She's stuck with this beauty. She might as well use it to her advantage, exert some control over her destiny. Meanwhile, Samson processes looks at the bowstring remnants clinging to his wrists. If this is a game to her, then fine, he'll play. Delilah watches Samson's eyes flicker with, what is that? Affection? Mischief? Lust? If anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. Samson always sleeps so soundly after they've been together. There's usually wine involved, of course, and everyone sleeps well after a good romp, but this is different. More. It's like his slumber is as supernaturally sourced as his strength. Delilah takes the new ropes and wraps them around the wrists of her lover, ties the knots just as she practiced. 
Silently, she opens the door and ushers in the men lying in wait. They hide behind curtains, inside closets, beneath piles of fabric. And then, Samson, the Philistines are upon you! Samson flies from his sleep at the speed of instinct, ready to make short work of the enemy. But there is no one. Only her. Delilah looks at Samson accusingly, the new ropes frayed on the ground as if he'd been bound by a single filament of sewing thread. He stands there heaving, unused adrenaline pumping through his veins. All this time you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. She stomps theatrically, perhaps fists clenched. Composes herself. Lets her silk nightgown fall off her shoulder. Something like that, surely. She knows Samson's language. Tell me how you can be tied. He looks around the room, maybe, his eyes settling on a loom in the corner. Time to make this ridiculous. If you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with a pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. Your move. A few days pass, a week or more maybe. Time to put Samson's latest answer to the test. Delilah pours the wine, welcomes Samson into her bed against her body, and Samson welcomes the welcome. Afterward, Samson sprawls on the mattress, drifts off. While he snores, Delilah sticks her head out the door and whispers for the soldiers to sneak in. She waves one of them over, surely for help, scooting the loom over to the bed. Quietly, awkwardly, haltingly, Delilah and her helper push and pull the loom next to Samson. His chiseled jaw hangs open as Delilah brings a chair over and gently takes Samson's serpentine braids in her hands. Runs her fingers over his head for a few moments first, certainly feigning attentive touch, lulling his subconscious. Then she reaches for the loom, takes one of the cords of his hair, has he ever had this cut, weaves it into the warp back and forth, in and out, tightens it with the pin, starts again with the next braid. Finally, all seven have been woven. Samson is fabriced into unwitting submission. Delilah stands, makes sure the soldiers are concealed, and cries, Samson, the Philistines are upon you! Samson's eyes shoot open, reflexes firing him out of the bed. The loom jerks to life, careening through the air in whatever direction his scalp travels, knocking over vases, furniture, Delilah almost. Is he playing it up at this point? Is he laughing? (laughs) Your move. How can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? Samson turns to Delilah. Not this again. But she's making that face. Is it possible to be enamored and irritated at the same moment? Why won't she let this go? Perhaps Samson wonders, genuinely perplexed. But maybe he knows. Or suspects. The creativity he's demonstrated... unconventional problem-solving he's shown himself capable of 
Surely Samson has put his intellect to work on the question of Delilah's pointed curiosity. At the very least, his subconscious must be gnawing on it. How hard would it be for Samson to imagine the Philistines cajoling Delilah into discovering how to render him powerless? Surely it's crossed his mind. But then why would he still be with her? This is a question most likely to be asked by someone who's never been in love. Those who've never sacrificed something precious in the interest of romantic fulfillment or sexual gratification will not understand. But most, if they let themselves, will comprehend Samson's irrationality, his self-imposed blindness, all too well. Delilah looks into his eyes, touches his arm, perhaps sheds a tear even. This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. Samson laughs it off, changes the subject, flatly refuses, maybe. Whatever he does, he does not tell Delilah what she wants to know. What she needs to know is she's going to survive. But Delilah will not give up. Day after day, she asks, nags, drives Samson from annoyance to anger to exasperation by way of her torturous insistence on getting the answer out of him. Finally, something snaps inside of Samson. He's sick to death of her asking, and what if he tells her? What if she finds out about his hair? What if she tells the Philistines? Then what? That's a good question. Maybe nothing would happen. He's already flirted with the boundaries of his Nazarite vow, spending time in vineyards when he wasn't supposed to drink, and the prohibition of contact with dead bodies. Well, he scraped honey from a lion's carcass, undressed those corpses in Ashkelon, held the freshly dismembered jawbone of that donkey long enough to fell 1,000 men, even had those still-moist tendons wrapped around his wrists, and what? Nothing happened. Strong as ever. Maybe there's nothing to that stupid vow. Or maybe... Maybe if this is it, maybe if his superhuman strength vanishes, then... Then Delilah will get the cold-hearted betrayal she wants. And he'll be free of this wretched strength. Free of the target on his back. Free of the siren song of his power constantly calling him to take what he wants, to kill whenever he wishes free of Yahweh's expectations, free to live a normal life, or die a normal death. Samson looks to heaven, perhaps. Take the gift? It was always a curse anyway. But you can't, can you? I bet you can't. I don't need you. No razor has ever touched my head. He stares at the floor, perhaps making no effort to sell this explanation. Delilah sits up, aware that something's different this time. I've been an avowed Nazarite to the deity from my mother's womb. Why doesn't he call Yahweh by name? Samson sighs, his eyes unfocused. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me. I'd become as weak as any other man. 
Why doesn't he tell her Yahweh is the source of his strength? Samson's never really known that, has he? Delilah's heart races. He's telling the truth. Samson dozes, fast asleep on Delilah's lap. She strokes his head, his hair, for the last time. Delilah silently nods to an attendant to bring the razor, while the soldiers creep in and take their hiding places. She caresses Samson's head. The attendant moves the blade back and forth, shearing, shaving, sheathing. If Samson dreams as he dozes, what does he dream about? Finally, all seven braids lie strewn on the floor, cut off from their source. Delilah takes a breath. Samson, the Philistines are upon you! Samson jolts awake, fists clenched and muscles flexed, ready for war. This time he finds Philistine soldiers attacking from every angle. He throws a punch, perhaps, and turns to dispense with the next man. But the first man is not on the floor. Another grabs him from behind, maybe, and when Samson jerks his arms down to break his bones, there is no snapping. Suddenly, a blow lands on his jaw or in his gut or against his nose or all three. Samson staggers backward and falls, bewildered, to the ground. So he's left me. The soldiers drag Samson from the room and the rulers of the Pentapolis paid Lila her silver, the price of her betrayal. Does Samson see this as the soldiers haul him away? What happens next will be remembered only in the briefest detail, and anything beyond that must be inferred, but the experience is anything but brief for Samson. Once the Philistines have their storied enemy in custody, they stand him in front of a shouting crowd of onlookers and bind him, arms behind his back, to a pole. A soldier strides up to the prisoner, unsheaths his knife, and raises it to Samson's eye. He shoves it into the edge of the socket and pivots the blade sideways, using the zygomatic bone as a fulcrum. Samson screams, his eyesight flickers and then goes black as a sucking sound fills his ears. The Philistine crowd screams their applause as the soldier holds aloft Samson's right eyeball. Then, the left. Now, to disinfect the wound. Boiling vinegar, poured into the two bloody goblets on Samson's face. The nearly unconscious Samson is untied, and bronze shackles are clapped around his wrists. They have no trouble holding him. He's taken to a prison, where he's forced to use what little strength he has left to grind grain for the Philistines. But something happens during the days Samson spends blindly trudging along in incarcerated circles. 
his hair begins to grow back. In a few weeks, the Philistines will hold a great feast. Over 3,000 men and women will gather in one of their temples, praising Dagon, their god, for enabling the capture of their hated enemy. The one person who stood between them and total domination of the dirty Hebrews. With drunken chants, they will call for Samson to be brought out of prison, and they will make him perform to their shouts and jeers. He will not be able to see them. Perhaps he will wonder if Delilah is in the crowd. And then Samson will pray. It will be the first time he's spoken Yahweh's name in years. He will ask the God he never really knew for the thing he never did appreciate. He will, for the first time, ask permission to do something. Sovereign Yahweh, Samson will plead, remember me. Please, Yahweh, strengthen me just once more. And Yahweh will grant his request. Superhuman strength will course through Samson's veins one last time. He will reach his arms between the two pillars that hold up the roof of the temple, and he will push. Arms outstretched, vengeance on his mind, he will bring death raining down on all of those sinners. They will get exactly what they deserve. Samson will die, but he'll make sure he's not the only one who does. It wasn't supposed to end this way. The middle, the middle was wrong too. Only the beginning of Samson's story was right. A baby born to an infertile woman, a surprise gift of rescue to a people oppressed. A boy set apart from his mother's womb, imbued with divine strength, sustained by a special closeness to the father. It went wrong after that. But one day, Yahweh will write a new story. It will begin in very much the same way. But this time, the boy will count his divinely appointed mission and otherworldly strength as a responsibility, a stewardship. The middle of the story will be good so very good. And the ending, the ending will be, well, arms outstretched, forgiveness on his mind, he will bring life raining down on all of those sinners. They will get what they never could have deserved. And the man, the man will live, and he'll make sure he's not the only one who does.
Hey, Justin here. Thanks so much for listening. I have four quick things for you. Number one, I hope the source, the collaborator, and the rogue blessed you. Samson is a whole mood. By the way, if you haven't heard the first episode from Samson's Life and Holy Ghost Stories, check out season two, episode five, The Source and the Fury, the lion, the jackal, firebomb, the heartbreaking indifference to Yahweh's vision for his life. It's all there. If you want some fascinating behind-the-scenes stuff about this episode, including a video on how to make a bowstring from the tendon of a deer, you should sign up for the latest. An email I send out twice a month. The link's in the show notes. Or go to holyghoststories.org. And if you want to check out an alternate ending I considered for this episode, I'm going to share that this week over on Patreon. There's other great stuff, bonus content there for you, and supporting the show there is the best way to partner with me to make sure Holy Ghost Stories keeps happening. You're listening right now because and only because of my incredible patrons. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Holy Ghost Stories, Patreon dot com slash Holy Ghost Stories. That link's in the show notes too. All right, number two, a season four update for you. The next season of Holy Ghost Stories, if you hadn't heard already, is going to be absolutely wonderful because the whole season will tell the story of Moses and the Exodus sequentially, episode by episode, with, if we can raise the money for it, a custom score created by acclaimed cellist and composer Kendall Ramsour. Here's what I haven't told you yet. In order to give us enough time to create that for you, I've changed the premiere date of season four from October to January. Not to worry though, I'm extending season three beyond the normal 10 episodes well into the fall so that you'll have plenty of stories to enjoy this year. Number three. If you want to pitch in on the cost of season four with a tax-deductible donation, or if perhaps your church might want to do that, just visit holyghoststories.org and click give. Every single bit helps, and I'm grateful to God for every one of you whose generosity is enabling Christian storytelling that is bringing people all over the world into new encounters with Yahweh. Thank you. Finally, number four, the very first Holy Ghost Stories live show is happening on October 30th in Midland, Texas. This will be an unforgettable night of story and song. You can get tickets at holyghoststories.org. Thanks to our wonderful hosts, they are free, but space is limited, so grab your tickets today. Now, I have to tell you this. I announced the show two weeks ago, and what in the world? We have people driving into Midland from Austin and Omaha and Oklahoma City. There are people flying from Huntsville and Baltimore and Nashville and Miami. I am just beside myself. You guys are clearly excited about this night, and honestly, you will not be disappointed. Kendall Ramsour will be on stage with me to provide a live musical score on Vanessa, his gorgeous cello, and there are some surprises I cannot wait to tell you about soon. HolyGhostStories.org for tickets. Get them, and I'll see you in Midland. All right, finally, a huge thank you to all of the incredible patrons of Holy Ghost Stories, and a heartfelt shout-out from all of us to the Tours. Dawn, Catherine, Jean-Paul, Tiffany, Jack, Rebecca, Sarah Beth, Ginger, Luke, Derek, Debbie, Aaron, Stephanie, Vicenta, Cheyenne, Boo, Helen, Elizabeth, Susan, Rick, Maddie, April, Eric, Jody, John, Ricky, Brandy, Kimmy, Steve, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Jack, Nelwyn, Julie, Jamie, Stephen, Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, Kara, and Jamie. You guys are like my seven Samson braids of strength. Without you, well, you know the story. Till next time. Thank you.